Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Uh, Pieter Gaber. It's a great privilege to have you here, and welcome. Tell us what's on your mind these days, what you're thinking about, what's occupying your thoughts. Thank you, Toby, first of all, for inviting me to this podcast. It's a really great opportunity to discuss my work and some of the kind of vital issues that uh, are on my mind. So that's a good mm. question to start with, because uh, what isn't on my mind at this point in time? The ecological crisis, Gaza, forthcoming US elections, Taiwanese elections. You know, so there's a whole range of these sorts of uh, contemporary pressure points that are, I think, coalescing at this point in time. And it's becoming a bit of an, uh, well, it's obviously a, a period of anxiety in many ways. Uh, one thing that I probably could kind of start off with without being too zeitgeisty or buzzwordy is that I was reading an article uh, by the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei this morning mm-hmm. on The Guardian, where he was talking about the ways that... Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of AI, artificial intelligence. And obviously AI is one of those kind of existential pressure points as well at this point in time, mm. both in terms of, uh, you know, labor, sustainability, but also in the ways that we see ourselves as uh, uh, as human beings. And uh, I think Ai Weiwei's points in the article are, you know, quite interesting in the sense that he makes that point that, AI can never really be a replacement for the human. And that's not, you know, a particularly novel point of view, but it's the way that he expresses himself about the need for highlighting human values and kind of human subjectivity that reinforces a kind of a really an optimistic message, which is something that I think mm-hmm. we need to hear at these points in point in time when, you know, everything seems to be about the negativity and the uncertainty of the present moment. So it, it was good to read that article. But at the same time, it kind of started me thinking about, you know, all of those quite well-known problem points for creatives and the creative sector overall about AI. So whether that be, you know, the use of extras uh, on film shoots being replaced by uh, AI created uh, avatars or whatever you might call them, or the ways that uh, the work of writers might be undercut by all of this as well, but perhaps also quite closer to what I'm doing in terms of my research, which tends to focus a lot on uh, Looking at the management of uh, the management of of the creative sector, particularly in terms of sustainability, and again, AI has you know featured there quite heavily. So there's been a lot of uh, discussion around uh, how all kinds of machine learning and automated processes can be used to make screen production more sustainable. So, for example, making sure that procurement is done in an ethical, sustainable way or making sure that you use virtual production and things like uh, and other such mechanisms to cut back on travel and all of that as well. And again, yeah, that's a relatively optimistic idea about how AI could be used in terms of kind of replacing some of those fallacies in human decision-making. Obviously, that doesn't really count for some of the more problematic aspects of AI, which is obviously that it doesn't, it's not intelligent and it can't really think for itself. So all it can really learn is what's been 
programmed into his code or what what sort of ideas he's been trained with. And unfortunately, from that sort of creative uh, sector management perspective at this point in time, the models, I think, that they, that these AI programs would be based on are, you know, they're based on problematic models of practice and, uh, you know, uh, knowledge in a way. So if a- if AI is embedded into the creative sector management as a sustainability tool, I kind of worry that it's not, whilst it can, you know, uh, cover for some of those fallacies in human thinking, it's also going to replicate many of the more problematic aspects of that, including all kinds of biases and uh, problems in terms of understanding the values of the creative sector in terms of sustainability that it just can't understand. And that's without going into all of these wider problems to do with uh, the kind of the environmental impacts of digital technologies and the the huge amount of energies that go into training AI and so on as well. So I think, yeah, it's a bit of a rambling start because, you know, it's a general question in a sense and I was trying to kind of convey how there, there, there are aspects of optimism that we can probably take from some of these crises. But at the same time, you know, something like AI, a potentially useful tool, but it can also be really, really problematic in a way that maybe some of the kind of artistic creatives might not be fully realizing when they're thinking about how that might be implicated into a sector that's often, you know, quite commercially minded and and quite problematic in terms of uh, how deep it's, ethical and sustainability efforts actually go into. So it might actually become a tool that replicates many of the problems that already exist there. I don't know if that makes much sense, but uh, that's probably a starting point here. No, that's very helpful because I think at the moment we're seeing an oscillation between the classic antinomies of the emergence of new technological applications between the optimistic and the pessimistic. And I think you've shown us the need for a middle way that's very, very valuable. And of course, the other thing that's interesting is that right now, some of the traditional intellectual property holders in the cultural sector, aware of how the then emergent platforms managed basically to piggyback on what they saw as their property in order to make a lot of money, want to stop that happening this time. And so that's, I think, at the same time as those platforms want to make sure it happens again. So those forces are in play very interestingly. But I wanted to pick up on something you you talked about when you referred a few times to sustainability issues. For many people working in the cultural sector or studying it, this is probably thought of as a relatively pure form ecologically, by contrast with the extractive manufacturing and farming sectors. I remember when I was entering into the world of mutual fund investments for my retirement in the early 1990s, one of the areas that good people decided they wanted to invest in was new technologies, digital technologies, because, hey, it's better than, it's clearly better than investing in the aviation sector or investing in fossil fuel extraction without a thought as to whether this was actually the case. So 
Could you tell us a little bit about those questions, about that issue? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And uh, a lot of my work at the moment focuses precisely on this sort of uh, addressing the yeah, the environmental impacts of various types of media production from film, TV to screen and uh, drawing from the work that you and Richard Maxwell have done on cleaning the media and so on as well. So, yeah, it's, the media sector is often perceived to be kind of harmless in the sense that uh, uh, its products are not as clearly evident in their kind of pollution or other carbon or other impacts for that matter, because they don't have that sort of immediate sense of one seeing the kind of pollution from a film consumption practice or film production set and so on as well. And uh, the, the sector's been quite good in harnessing that sort of rhetoric of the cloud, especially as a means of evading any sort of real critique of their practices that, you know, if we're using digital, we're not using anything tangible as such. So we are communicating through a harmless kind of nice blue sky type cloud environment that then uh, doesn't leave the sort of impacts that, for example, more kind of legacy media in terms of paper and uh, newspapers and so on would have had. And uh, well, there's been obviously there's been quite a lot of re- research in the recent years about the impacts of uh, information and communications technologies on the environment and the kind of the huge impacts that the digital infrastructure that we use for everything more or less nowadays actually has on the environment. So that's one of the problems with the media sectors. Uh, uh, well, impacts on the environment is that it's, it, it is actually quite massively polluting in, in many ways. And, uh, and that goes from anything from, you know, starting a, let's say a film production and the resources, catering, travel, accommodation, energies that go into making a film, but it's also the post-production that tends to often happen through using digital technologies, using, you know, outsourced uh, CGI from other parts of the world that then have, uh, that then can't really often be accounted for, for example, by a Hollywood uh, film studio if they're outsourcing to other parts of the world that have completely different types of uh, energy infrastructures and regulations in place. So, you know, how do you calculate for those sort of impacts then it goes back to the the user, obviously, and uh, the, the ways that they uh, access content on uh, anything from YouTube to Netflix HD, 4K, 8K, and so on as well. So, and so there are these sort of massive, massive impacts, in particular from digital technologies that are often kind of sidelined in a lot of the rhetoric around these issues. And um, I've been talking to a couple of. Uh, publishing companies in my kind of research around these issues and some of them make the the point that actually print media might be more environmentally sustainable than digital media because when you're when you're making a print newspaper that gets printed only once and and the material itself can then be recycled but when you're doing an article online in a digital newspaper that get, that can be downloaded multiple different times. It doesn't really get stored anywhere, but the user has to keep accessing that in multiple different ways through different systems. So the, in, the environmental or carbon impacts from accessing a digital article are not necessarily any more sustainable than to actually looking at a print newspaper. So it's those sort of... Uh, you know, and, and that, that's all, there's, you know, quite fundamental 
substantial calculations behind all of this as well. But the key point is not so much the debates around whether an article should be downloaded online or accessed in a print newspaper, but it's the way that the industry is using rhetoric and kind of discourses around sustainability that really interests me. So, you know, why are they making this claim that digital is so much better? Why are they suggesting that by moving into kind of convergent media, you know, for anything like Netflix and so on as well, it helps them be more sustainable? And one of the other key points that uh, a colleague of mine and uh, me have been working on a lot is looking at uh, Hunter Vaughan from the University of Cambridge. We've, we run this uh, network called the Global Green Media Network that looks at the sort of environmental impacts uh, in different global locations. So one of the things that I've focused a lot on with, uh, with Hunter is on uh, virtual production and its impacts as well, because that's in many ways seen by, for example, the film industry as a means of cutting back on its emissions. So, you know, you don't have to travel to locations, you don't have to build massive sets and so on as well. At the same time, you know, virtual means energies and emissions as well. So, you know, the the kind of the intensity of energy research that goes into making virtual production is also quite substantial. So it's often this sort of balance between the more kind of traditional types of emissions that you might get from travel and catering and so on to these sort of virtual uh, emissions, often again implicated in those kind of quite obtuse AI machine learning systems that we don't really necessarily know much about, that I think is the problem here in a way. And that, that's what fascinates me in many ways is that it's the way that the industry takes up this rhetoric. Because again, in some ways, it's often really to do with... Uh, anticipating external pressure on them on, on on the sector to be sustainable so it's it might be about regulations or policies that are incoming for the sector so for example in the UK at the moment that if you want to work with the BBC you have to fill a BAFTA Albert carbon report and you have to look at ways of mitigating your impact so clearly these sort of pressure points are coming into play in different parts of the global media industry in at different speeds in different locations. But but the mechanisms that are in place to account for the for the kind of environmental impacts of media production are slightly problematic in in how impactful they actually are. But the key point I think for the industry in a way is to avoid more enforced regulation that might start to actually cut back on its emissions. So, you know, when we're talking about internal kind of industry, self-managed self-regulation with uh, something like BAFTA in the UK coordinating these efforts, you know, BAFTA's doing great work in terms of uh, ensuring that different parts of the UK sector are becoming more sustainable. But at the same time, they often require a carbon footprint from a from a production and since then they've now instigated a plan where a producer has to make a kind of list of what they might do in terms of cutting back on production but but nothing actually requires anyone to do anything fully tangible about their production impacts so that's the problem with the kind of the self-regulatory 
regime at the moment is that it's not something that's enforcing things on the level that you know EU regulations, domestic regulations might be able to do. So for the industry, you know, if they can put out positive vibes about how they are engaging in virtual production or how they're looking into sustainability, that kind of is enough for them at this point in time. So the problem from my perspective then is that sustainability doesn't become something that they have to do or that they really feel that they can actually do, but it becomes something more like reputational management that as long as they do just enough, they'll get by and they don't really have to go into any sort of, uh, you know, rethinking of their production flows or rethinking how they disseminate their products uh, because they don't have to. And that's, the problem at the moment. So it's that sort of rhetoric, I think, that interests me the most. Yeah, sorry. Just for people listening outside, Britain BAFTA is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, and it's, in a sense, the peak representative body of that sector, and it gives out awards. It's award season now there as it is in the US. Um, thinking of the Hollywood situation... The majors, some of them, first adopted some mitigating policies in the mid-80s, I think Warner's, and just about all of them have those things in place now. But that's very much self-regulation of the kind that you're querying, I think. And actually, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with an environmental scientist who's looked at Netflix's claims in great detail and really exploded them for anybody uh, listening. Uh, and so I think there's something there that's very important. On the one hand, it's good if these institutions acknowledge there's a problem. But as you say, they're trying to stymie any democratic intervention <laughs> through this notion of self-regulation. I think that's very well taken and very well put. Do you see... Any good signs, for example, outside the awful exceptionalism that the British and the US want in the European Union? Do you see anything better coming from the EU on this score? There's a lot of movement going on in the EU at the moment on this. So on the EU level, they're developing various types of mechanisms for embedding sustainability into all aspects of the production practice. And uh, the EU Horizon uh, funding organisation puts out a call that more or less asks for projects that deal with uh, sustainability in the creative sector. And uh, there's been some really interesting maybe case study based examples from uh, from the eu that really in some ways they i won't say they shame the U us and the uk but they really put they really put in comparison what could be done so for example in uh, austria they've instituted a 5% tax rebate for anyone who comes there and shoots in a sustainable way so they are effectively giving money to organ to any to production companies that want to shoot there, in um, in in the Flanders Film Fund in Belgium, uh, only releases I think the, the final ten percent of their funds if production is is done in a sustainable way. So there are these sort of uh, 
localized uh, or nation-based examples that are being done that are quite going to be quite impactful in terms of uh, incentivizing green production, but you know, really making it an economic question for production companies because you know that's what they are at the end of the day. They are businesses and they need to run as such. So if you talk in that language, you're probably going to get further in terms of actually making something happen on uh, on on location and on film sets as well. So I think at this point in time, most of the EU countries have their own own national systems in place, whether that be private companies that act as consultants or film agencies that are trying to embed it into policy. But it's quite slow going at the same time as well, which is, again, where we come back to, you know, largely BAFTA and the the BF British Film Institute and uh, other organisations like Film London in the UK who are, you know, quite innovative in terms of what they're doing. So they are kind of leading the conversation in many ways at this point in time. Mm. But some of the more, I think, kind of impactful regulatory measures are Uh emerging elsewhere. Yeah. And it's always worth mentioning the European Union in this context, not for, if you like, traditional Eurocentric reasons, but because despite the mythology that is constantly perpetrated, this is the biggest group of wealthy consumers in the world by far. Mm. And so that means that where there is regulation of products in particular, even the United States and Japan and so on have to bear that in mind when they're designing things. I'm thinking of everything from toys to computers, right? Mm. So uh, that's more complicated when you're talking about production processes, of course, which is what you're circling on to here. But it it is interesting. I guess another area I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know whether this is something you look at in the the group you are in with Hunter Vaughan, but music, because I know that in Britain there is this thing called Julia's Bicycle. Julia's Bicycle. Yeah, Julia's Bicycle, yeah. Julie's Bicycle. I wondered about the music sector as opposed to film and TV. Well, I haven't done any particular research on the music sector, Uh but Julie's Bicycle is really well known in the UK as a more kind of arts and cultural sector organisation that deals with anything from the music industry to museums. And they also deal with some aspects of media production as well. But with, with the music sector, a lot of it, it is to do with kind of a venue management and dealing with, you know, how, how you organize concerts and, uh, you know, how you, how do you deal with the inevitable travel that comes with organizing concerts? Because that's in, obviously one of the main uh, sources of income for musicians mm-hmm. and uh, music producers so so they are they are looking at ways of reducing the impacts of uh, first of all the venues themselves and then the kind of ways that consumers uh, uh, come to these venues and what they do at these venues so you know kind of sustainable means of resourcing uh, catering and so on are, are, are a big part of that and in many ways, you know, those are the same kind of concerns that would apply to something like a film set in many ways as well, is that it's, it's to do with the, with so, you know, the questions that we're talking about here are quite substantial in the way that, we, for example, a film shoot, you're talking about not only 
filmmakers or film production companies, but you're talking about infrastructure overall, like studios, for example, and the management of studio space. So in a recent workshop that we that Hunter and I organized in London, we had a we had representatives from many of the uh, UK based Hollywood studios who run their own kind of studio complexes here as well. And uh, they were talking about all of these kind of really exciting measures in which they're they're looking into building management you know so anything from heating to the kind of ways that people who work at these studios travel to these locations are being considered here so that's kind of that's fascinating in a way is that you know i come from a more kind of traditional media studies background where, where i started looking at texts and the ways that ideologies politics culture function through the media text but now a lot of the job in a way is understanding how building management works. So it's a bit of a kind of a new area of study <laughs> in some ways, but uh, it's exciting to do that, yeah. But there were always people who looked at the building of theatres and movie theatres and where they were and why they were there. So yeah. I wondered if we could shift onto this other work that you are very well known for, which is the field of Nordic cinema mm. and both Scandinavian production and also finish. I can't help but ask you as somebody who I think probably still has an appointment in Helsinki. Or Yes, and it's what they called a docent and adjunct professor. But, so it's more kind of an honorary title that right, I have yeah, right. there. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you're based generally in the UK. Yeah, the, I am. The question the is uh, not about film, but I want to get onto that later. I have to ask you about NATO and mm. what is happening with Ukraine. And if, if it's okay, unfortunately, that would mean for a lot of listeners potentially needing to explain to them Finland's really unique geography and history. I know that could take five years. It but, could, yeah. you know, to explain why it might be that quite otherwise progressive forces might want to see a connection uh, to NATO. Okay, well, I'll... Try to come up with a nutshell explanation of Finland's complex history with Russia. So, and I won't go into the more the kind of the pre twentieth century because that would take days. But so, so Finland used to be effectively a a part a grand duchy of uh, of Russia back in the early twentieth century, and they gained their independence from Russia as a result of the the nineteen seventeen revolution. There, so Finland's been able to kind of carve its own pathway uh, whilst existing ne- next to the Soviet Union, what it became known as obviously after that. So, uh, But because Finland shares that massive uh, long crown border with the Soviet Union, especially in the kind of the, the, the Cold War period, uh, the, the, the integration between the two countries has been quite fundamental. So in a uh, for example, during the 1960s and the 1970s, there, there was a lot of discourse about this sort of uh, appeasement politics that were constantly being maintained between the Finnish government and the Soviet government. So it was called Finlandization, where you know anything that Finland did in terms of its uh, uh, of its geopolitical position or even its domestic policies had to more or less be in one way or another approved by the Soviets. So uh, so there, there was a kind of close management of relations between the two countries, and it's kind of worth maybe noting as well that. Uh, 
uh, Estonia, which is just south of Finland, uh, also has a ground uh, ground border with the Soviet Union at the time, but they were part of the Soviet bloc. So Finland managed to kind of stay out of that uh, and maintain its independence, but still it had to conduct this sort of, uh, uh, well, politics based on the reality of the circumstances where they literally had to appease whatever demand the Soviets had. So there's got a lot of examples from, for example, film culture, where films produced in the 1930s, late 1930s, before the Second World War, that show a kind of more negative depiction of Russians or the Soviets were more or less banned in Finland until the 1990s. And uh, there's a couple of kind of... Uh, action films produced one with uh, the the son of Chuck Norris Mike Norris directed by Rennie Harlin who became a Hollywood director called Arctic Heat that deals with the kind of the Cold War politics between the two that was uh, that was effectively heavily cut because of the inf- direct influence from Soviets uh, kind of regulators in Finland. So, so so, this whole kind of complex relationship wasn't only something that was done on the level of governments by impacting on kind of daily life and the arts and so on as well. And uh, with the, uh, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Finland was able to kind of get more of its independence and they joined uh, the EU in 1995. So again, that was something that Finland couldn't have done before. So they were part of the EC, but not the EU until the Soviet Union had collapsed. So that was part of that sort of closer integration with with Finland's kind of European neighbours. And maybe one slight kind of detail that's important to note here as well is the that in the Nordic countries, you've got the Scandinavian countries, which is Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, and Iceland as well. And then Finland's kind of the odd one out. So it's kind of linguistically on the edge of... very linguistically very different. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Indeed, and yeah, that kind of signifies this difference in many ways as well. So, so I think for Finland, it's always been quite important that uh, they are not perceived to be part of the Soviet Union or Russia, but they are perceived to be European or Nordic or whatever. So Mm -hmm. that's the roots in many ways of what's been happening in the past couple of years since the invasion of Ukraine is that uh, there there, there has been this sort of constant sense of apprehension and tension about the Soviet, uh, uh, Russia, even in the kind of the early 21st century. But, you know, since the invasion of uh, Ukraine and some of the kind of commentaries that we've seen in Russian media about the role of uh, the Baltic states and Finland and so on have uh, clearly played a role here in terms of making sure that Finland eventually decided to join NATO. So again, that that, that NATO conversation has been there uh, for decades as well. But again, it was something that wasn't perceived perhaps as something that was massively urgent in the in the early 2000s and it was also perceived to be as you know something slightly problematic that you know do you really want to join NATO is a super national organization run by the US in some ways and uh, and then aggravating Russia at the same time and you know Finland used to do quite a lot of business with Russia before all of this as well obviously so so those sort of things have so there's been kind of this sort of a uh, real politic going on between Finland and Russia, where they have to, in some ways, maintain this sort of uh, 
good neighbor relations, but that more or less kind of broke down with Ukraine. And uh, then the, uh, you know, public support for NATO and political support then meant that, you know, Finland eventually joined NATO. And uh, it's, I think from a Finnish perspective, it's, it's really seen more as a, it's not, I would say, an ideological move, more, but more kind of a simply a safety measure at this point in time to make sure that, that you know, you're part of something bigger because Finland's a small, it's, it's quite a large country, you know, geographically, but it's 5.5 million people at the same time. So th- there's not much that Finland might be able to do in a contemporary kind of military environment, but, but as part of NATO, probably there's more security in some ways, yeah. Well, thank you for that wonderful answer. Of course, one of the in- interesting things that it, Finland also did during the Soviet era, particularly in the 70s and 80s, was be an interlocutor between these two big blocks. I'm thinking of the Helsinki Accords uh, on Human Rights, for example, which probably yes. would not have occurred anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And, of course, it's also been very important after the Cold War in things like trying to get proper human rights in the area of clinical trials of pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. So there are these interesting points of intermediation that Finland has managed. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off, you know, the main area we're supposed to talk about, but I just wanted to put a little pitch for your country, uh, as it were. No, no, but that, that's a really interesting point, and, and absolutely, and that that's often why, again, this sort of semi-independence that Finland had in some ways was really important for them, that they mm. were able to mediate between these two powers, because you didn't, in the rest of the kind of European continent, you didn't have a country like that. So, you know, you, you had your divided Germany and then the two blocs in some ways. But, but and detail to media, again, is that Finland in the during the Cold War was often being used as a location when American film studios wanted to uh, portray Moscow or Russia. So Gorky Park, for example, the William Hurt film from 1983 was filmed largely in Helsinki because they could make it appear Russian quickly. So, I, I yeah. watched it again the other day. Actually. Yeah, it's um, fascinating I watched, film. I saw it when it came out, but I watched it again. And it's that problem of viewing non-digitally restored films in high definition. It looks like it was made in someone's backyard. It's terrible. I recently bought a 4K projector to be slightly unenvironmental, but uh, but you know if you don't have 4K content, everything looks absolutely terrible. It so looks it's appalling, doesn't it? So yeah. this thing, I'm looking at it and I'm tracking William Hurt's hairline and realizing, well, that's about the only thing that looks good in the movie. But <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting though to talk about the the almost fantastical place of Finland in these these points of tension. And um, anyway, to get back to the, the film and television stuff, so you edit a, a journal on Scandinavian and I guess and Finnish cinema, or Nordic cinema. Journal Scandinavia, yeah. It, it's based uh, in uh, Lund, Sweden, so I think that's probably why they use the term Scandinavian right. for it, but it's Nordic but as well. Yeah. You're one of the editors. One of the editors, yeah. We... And you've also edited and, and written not only on the topic of environmental issues to do with cinema in particular, but also what one might think of as a more traditional cinema studies approach that you adumbrated earlier. So national film policy, 
regional film policy and the products. So I wanted to ask you about one of the problems that I, in my rather amateurish way, perceive with the discourse of national cinema, not Mm. in academic terms so much, but in policy ones. And it's this, as you know, again and again, you know, whether the big bad daddy is Sweden or Mexico or Hollywood or England, the, the arguments made for these forms of national cinema are partly about ways to reflect the society to itself that are creative and constructive, whilst also potentially critical, and industrially and politically, they provide an alternative to the dominance of these major media powers, be those regional or global. Yeah, that's the sort of argument. But again and again, national cinema, and the same can be applied to things like national television drama, is about stories told about white men from the middle class for white men of the middle class, featuring white men of the middle class, or um, incredibly romantic fantasies of a sort of rural idyll. And you get this big time in Latin America, in Mexico, and big time in Scandinavia too. You know, that the, the real Scandinavian is not the person living in Oslo or Stockholm or even learned, it is the person battling the elements, right? This earthy ideology. So I wondered if you could comment on whether, as I say, my very amateurish account of national cinema discourse and its problems applies uh, and how you would relate to the concept of national cinema these days. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. deal with the kind of national film production and policies more, but I completely take your point there. That's a, there's a, there tends to be this sort of a, really kind of outdated sort of nostalgia or, you know, ruralism and so on that pervades in a lot of these kind of smaller national cinemas. And, uh, and it's something that, pervades not only in terms of the kind of the topics that are being chosen, but also what tends to be successful. So, and that's fascinating in some ways that, so for example, the recent uh, remake of The Unknown Soldier in Finland, uh, I think that was late 2010s, it was a huge hit with the national population. It was like literally one of the biggest films of all time. And you think that's a film about the Second World War might not be, you know, the most obvious thing to reflect on uh, on contemporary society. And again, with mostly and kind of a almost exclusively male cast at the same time. So, you know, how how does that really reflect on what Finland is nowadays? But it tends to these films do tend to weirdly work. And uh, but at the same time, I probably do kind of have to say that that. In the Nordic countries and in most national film industries nowadays, that there are, you know, quite active diversity and equality policies in place mm-hmm. that do mm-hmm. support more diversity. And uh, again, in the Nordic countries, we're seeing quite a lot of content being made now by uh, uh, first, second generation immigrant filmmaker or, or filmmakers from a uh, diverse ethnic background yes. that then reflect their experiences of what it is to live in uh, in these contemporary societies and they in some ways I think do probably reflect a more 
updated and appropriate version of what this society should be, especially because they tend to be quite critical about what the what was actually going on in terms of, for example, immigration policy in Denmark and so on as well. So it's good to see these sort of films emerge. But it is a really kind of important point to make that the more traditionalist films tend to persist. And uh, one of the things that I made, one of the arguments I made in one of my earliest books was that it's often, again, you know, the no- notion of nature and ecology that's being harnessed at the same time here. So yes. lots of these, you know, biopics of uh, great men in Nordic countries, great white men, obviously, in Nordic countries, uh, they tend to rely on these ideas that, that somehow their greatness is linked to them capturing something essential about the kind of natural national identity. And, uh, you know, that's a really problematic discourse to be portraying, especially in contemporary, you know, society where any sort of these sort of kind of ethno-symbolist or ethno-traditionalist mm-hmm. ideas are used for populist politics in problematic ways. So maybe film culture shouldn't really play into those hands and should actually be much more about being aggressive because that's what they were used to, at least often being referred to as being relatively progressive. But we, yeah, yeah, I'm not kind of saying that all Nordic films are, don't, don't have any sort of progressiveness in them, but there's plenty of really kind of challenging and exciting films as well made by filmmakers from all kinds of backgrounds. But at the same time, this sort of uh, traditionalism persists there in a weird way. And also, of course, there's a tradition of rural socialism that's important. Mm -hmm. I think in in the upper Midwest of the US, traditionally uh, Nordic-descended farmers were some of the most progressive political figures of the 19th and early up to mid-20th centuries. But I wanted to move on to another word, a word that I associate with you, um, which is exploitation. Oh, great. Okay, interesting. Can you? Would you like me to try to explain it? Yeah. If that's okay, yeah. yes, please. Yeah, so with a colleague from Varsov University, Tommy Gustafsson, I, read, uh, I edited, uh, no, I wrote a monograph called Nordsploitation that deals with uh, marginalised or ignored films in the Nordic film canon. So, you know, when you look at uh, lots of books or articles on the Nordic film histories, you tend to see a lot of the kind of the same same films, the same names and so on being discussed in multiple complex ways because, there's you know, there's plenty to say about Ingmar Bergman, for example, or Aki Karismaki and so on. But uh, but there's a whole range of uh, more kind of underground filmmaking that tends to be ignored in a, in a lot of these film, in, in a lot of these film histories. Mm. And uh, Tommy and I in the book make this argument that there's an economic and a cultural reason for this. So mm-hmm. the economic reason is that the Nordic film countries are small. So, you know, the kind of uh, funds available for production in the Nordic countries tend to be really minimal or, or at least coordinated by, you know, national film agencies and so on. So it's difficult for filmmakers to make films that don't get the official stamp of approval. Because if you can't get funding from, you know, the Finnish Film Foundation, for example, it's probably unlikely that you can get your film made. So, and that's to do, again, with these small national populations that oftentimes these films wouldn't really travel, so they have to make money from the domestic box office. So any time a filmmaker wanted to produce a film independently, 
that would be a massive gamble. So in a way, the national film authorities coordinated what was acceptable national cinema by their funding decisions. So you have this mm-hmm. whole range of other type of filmmaking that were often produced on really low budgets and which often tended to get kind of lost in the kind of distribution cycles where they might not get theatrical releases or they'd get re- released only in kind of a, on VHS and so on. And why we call it Nordsploitation is that a lot of these films are explicitly kind of commercial, shamelessly almost commercial films. So they use yes. American, often imported American genre formulas and uh, approaches quite explicitly. So you see a lot of uh, slasher films and kind of uh, hardcore action films and so on. That's uh, that's in, that's were not approved by the film agencies of the time. So, so for, for, you know, the official national cinema, that was the kind of historical cinema that I've already discussed in a way. So they, the gatekeepers would dictate that if you wanted to make Finnish films, for example, they'd have to be kind of socio-realist art films like Aki Karismaki, or they'd have to be this sort of a great man biopics or something like that. But any sort of, you know, copy of Friday the 13th, for example, wouldn't really get made. So there's a whole kind of undercurrent of these sort of films made by, you know, individuals that were able to get access to all kinds of imported content and then using that to be improvised in terms of making finished films out of them that have been ignored. And one other thing that I probably need to note here as well is that the Nordic countries had a really heavy level of censorship, not Sweden and Denmark in some areas, but for example, um, Finland used to probably have the worst, one of the worst censorship regimes in the early, in the late 80s and early 90s on, uh, on video. So you'd have uh, more or less all, most slashers, the Friday the 13th franchise, Halloween, they were all banned in Finland. You know, well-known films like Robocop was cut by 12 minutes and things like that. So so there, there was a whole kind of a notion of access to these films. So, you know, people, young individuals at the time would pay a lot of money to be able to access uncut films from different parts of the world and then use these to be inspired by the kind of underground dynamics of uh, this sort of filmmaking. And then they'd make their own films independently of the state in a way. And then, you know, have this almost kind of a counterculture that we call exploitation. And there's a lot of very strange films made throughout the decades <laughs> in all of, all of the different countries. I'm not going to go into detail here, probably not the best thing to do, but uh, yeah, I would recommend some of them if you can find the book somewhere. Yeah. Specialist tastes, let's say. They so, are, yeah. Prof. Pietaro, we've got about five minutes left, and I wanted to do two things. First of all, to ask you one last question, mm-hmm. but then to invite you to talk briefly about something we haven't discussed that you would like to mention, or if there's something you'd like to add to what's already been said. So my final question, and some people when I ask that say, there's nothing more to say. And then suddenly they remember, they think of something and some people have an answer. And some people really say, you've bored the living shit out of me with your dumbass questions. I just want to go home now, as it were. But my, my final question to you, Prof is, to ask you, and this sounds a bit like a biologist or even a classicist, 
evaluating your application for a job or a promotion, how do you know the things you know? How do you well, find them out? That is a good Western. I think it's probably being embedded in this in so many ways. So, you know, because media is so pervasive, so everywhere. So, you know, even if I'm kind of doom scrolling on X or something like that, which I don't want to do much anymore, <laughs> a lot of the algorithms feed this sort of information to me almost automatically because they think that I like that in a way. So, so it's being embedded in this sort of uh, mediatized culture all the way in a way that uh, helps me try to keep up to date with a lot of the developments in the industry. And then just literally being as interested as possible. One of the other things that I've done a lot with Hunter, for example, on the environmental production and management side is, is with building networks of collaboration with industry partners. So, And that's what I've found to be probably one of the most useful things in in my research is that you know when we when what when I collaborate with industry partners on a kind of uh, immediate level the kind mm. of detail that we get through in just basic conversations can be really fruitful so for example last autumn we organized a writing retreat with um, eight industry partners in kind of rural West Midlands where we're literally on a kind of farm for four days. And the kind of conversations we had with some of our industry partners throughout their four days really allows for that sort of embedded knowledge to come through that can be a bit difficult to do when you're, for example, trying to get an interview with a creative or a policymaker or just reading policy documents. So I think it's probably just being embedded in things. That's the best way to get knowledge and it's sometimes knowledge that might not seem that relevant in the beginning it's just you know kind of conversational knowledge but that's when it becomes part of the bigger picture it becomes suddenly quite important in some way so maybe that is one of the ways but yeah but who knows what i know anyway so it's, it's one of those things that uh, <laughs> i have limited knowledge i do admit that <laughs> and is there something prof that you'd like to add to our discussion to this point as we finalize things well, it's, uh, if, if it's feasible, can I bounce this back to you in a way? Because obviously you've done a lot of really interesting work on kind of greening the media as well. So where do you see us heading with all of these kind of really complex developments where the screen media sector is now fully aware of obvious environmental problems, there's policy frameworks and even some regulations in place. But, you know, how... How do they make this tangible that isn't only greenwashing culture, like you've put it, but actually something that might be impactful in a way that isn't really just kind of PR and branding? Yeah. Well, very quickly, I think the answer lies in getting at people who use media technologies, not just focusing on studios, for example, or governments. And getting people who use these technologies to think about the fact, you know, I'm watching the English Premier League on my telephone. What is the impact of that on the environment, right? Mm. But to do so not in the traditional form of consumerism, the sense of guilt or decency on the part of a consumer, but rather to get people to try to put together the life of the commodity sign in their thinking and identify themselves, yes, as customers if or users if they must, 
but also as workers and citizens, that they use these devices not just for fun, but for labor. And does that give them the capacity to identify with other workers in the production chain, whether that is people who are driving too late at night on after work on a film set and are tired and are engaging in risky conduct that has been institutionally required, whether it is people working in semi-slavery circumstances to get hold of the basic minerals for these newer technologies, whether that's the people working in, at, at best, indentured circumstances to manufacture them. And to, to think about the alternatives, and there are alternatives, of course, as we know, uh, like Fairphone is an attempt to do this in the European context. And it's interesting, Fairphone's being run by somebody who ran the anti-slavery in chocolate production field for many years. Yes. Most chocolate is produced by slaves. People as consumers don't know this often. It is not presented to them as knowledge when it should be. But quite apart from whether or not honourable consumption could follow from greater knowledge and produce better outcomes socially and environmentally, there's a question of re-identification for me to see mm. oneself as a citizen worker and articulate one's interests to those of other workers and other citizens. So that's what I hope for. Really interesting answer and uh, lots of lots to think about there. So kind of mobilization of, from the ground up in a way and making consumers aware of the wider responsibilities in terms of environment, society, and so on. And absolutely, I agree with that. And uh, I think that's going to be one of those things that we will need to be more mindful of in the future because, uh, you know, policies and governments and so on only get you so far here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I learned a huge amount in the last 50-odd minutes about geopolitics, NATO, national film policy, environmental issues, management issues, how to do research, so I thank you very, very deeply and uh, invite you to come back to the pod at some point, if you will. Thank you so much for this opportunity and uh, keep up the good work. Brilliant.